So Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. If, if you've ever experienced reading the scriptures all the way through as, and, and re- read it as a whole, um, it might have taken you a long time to do, but hopefully you, you're able to catch the, the story, right? The, the, the big narrative, the whole story of what's, what's going on, the, the big picture, and, and running, in, um, running in theological circles, we, we call that understanding biblical theology, right? You're understanding the, the whole story. You can see the, 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 the whole story of salvation history of what, of what God is doing. And, and in this great story that we have at least revealed to us by, by the Scripture is, is we see this epic struggle, in a sense, between good versus evil, right? And we see this epic struggle between good versus evil, this, this great struggle. And in this great struggle, all of humanity is, is caught up in this great struggle. And we're all caught up in this great struggle. And we talked a little bit about that last week, how Adam, who sinned, now we are in union with Adam, this mysterious union that we are with Adam, that now we have this, this curse of sin and death that has also been placed upon us because of our, of our father, Adam. Now I use this word, struggle, kind of loosely a little bit, because it's a struggle to us, but I can guarantee you that it's no struggle to God. And it's not, God is not breaking a sweat here over sin and death. But we know that sin and death is going to be defeated and has been defeated on the cross and ultimately will be put away. We, we sang about those, those truths this morning. So there's this, there's this sort of war that is going on. This epic battle between us. Between, between good and evil that we are, we are caught up in and we've seen this since Genesis chapter 3 now that the whole world is under the curse of sin and death. But in this curse, in this area of Genesis chapter 3, there was also a promise that was made. And this promise is, is that the, the, the serpent... Right. First of all, the, the, the curse to the, to the serpent and then the curse to the, to the, to the seed of the woman where the sin that's going to be placed upon us and the curse of sin and death and things like that. But also within it, there's this, there's this promise that is made that one day there would be one that would come of the, of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. Right? But, but, in, but until then, there's going to be this, this epic struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there's, you see it throughout the Scripture where, where the seed of the serpent is trying to take over and usurp the, the seed of, of the woman. And in the nature of our passage this morning, that even though there's this war that's raging, that has been raging, this battle between good and evil, we get a glimpse of this up-close and personal war where the, the, the two parties seemingly kind of actually face off. 
It's been almost building to this, to this moment. And if we read it in, in this sort of context of, of biblical history and salvation history, it's, it gets intense. It gets, it gets real. So last week, as we, we saw the, the baptism of Jesus and, and, and how Jesus was baptized by John, what we see, more importantly, in that passage, not only Jesus being obedient to fulfill righteousness, to consider himself just like us, we see from the outset of that, or the outset of that, we see how God himself, this triune God, shows up and shows outright joy and approval upon the Son of God. There was Trinitarian joy that was on display. Jesus is baptized and he is praying. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him. And God the Father speaks audibly. This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And, and these words, right, as we talked about last week, that, that these words are are absolutely foundational for us understanding uh, um, how Jesus is going to face these next three years of ministry that will eventually lead him to the cross. Right? How else did, did Jesus face such betrayal and abandonment? How did he face such slander? How did he face the, the pain and the anguish of the cross and knowing that that was what was before him? It was remembering and knowing and confidence that he is the beloved son of God in whom he is well pleased. And so right after the baptism, Luke strategically puts the genealogy for us, doesn't he? He gives us this genealogy, not for us to, not to skim over and to, to, to lose, but for us to see the very end of the genealogy, and that is Adam, the son of God. So in these two passages, how God is pleased with the, his, his son as he is fulfilling the righteousness of God by being baptized and considering himself one of us and being baptized, he is pleased with his son, we have this comparison that is set for us as we look and think about Adam for us to compare. And so we went to Romans 5 last week. We went to Romans 5 where, where Paul then takes these two, right, Adam and Jesus, and he compares them for us. But in the comparison, he shows us from the outright to the end that Jesus is far superior over Adam. That no matter this mysterious union that we have in the flesh with our father, Adam, the, the free gift of grace through Christ that is accomplished on the cross is greater and far more superior than the work of the flesh. That's for us to see as we compared the two sons of God. Jesus, perfect, sinless, the spotless, sacrificial lamb, perfectly atoned for our sins. What a great gift. And so in that, as Jesus has shown us by his, uh, by his work and by his sinless life, he has achieved and brought about our justification. He has made us right before the Lord. We have been justified. We've been made clean. We talked about 1 John chapter 4.10. Jesus has, has been sent by the Father for the propitiation of our sins. 
Meaning we've been, we've been essentially, essentially what that means is that the wrath of God toward these sinners, those who will be saved, has been completely satisfied. That there's no longer wrath toward us. And what we also saw coming off of Romans chapter 5 and 1 John chapter 4, we saw that not only did Christ achieve our justification, but our justification was to bring us to reconciliation. That we have been reconciled to God. Meaning now we can be called children of God. We, we, quoted, first, or we quoted John chapter 1. Children of God, not by flesh, but by the will of God. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And if we are children of God, then we are sons of God. And if we are sons of God, as Christ, because of the, because of the righteousness of Christ, we are beloved. We, we, are, we are beloved, and, and, and God is pleased with us. But it's not because of the right, our own righteousness. It's a righteousness that has been imputed to us, the righteousness of the Son. And so we are loved as sons, and we're not as slaves anymore. Romans chapter 8. We're loved as sons, not slaves. And this is such a huge identity shift for, for us because we, the, the flesh, I think in our, even in our own experience of life, we're, we're so used to living as slaves in this performance-driven existence and desires that we don't know how to live as sons. We don't know how to live as loved and to live daily in the joy of Christ and live in uh, the liberty and freedom from sin. One of the quotes that I, I told you last week um, was from J.R. Vassar, where he said that a love that we have to earn is, an, is a love that we can never enjoy. A love that we have to earn is never a love that we can enjoy. Some of you know that exactly. You felt the toiling of it. No peace. So our relationship, our place, our position with God, the Father's not based upon we're dependent upon our performance, but rather it's found in the finished work of Christ. And I wanted to repeat all of that, because I think repetition is good for us, by the way. I wanted to repeat all of that and kind of just walk you back through that, because it leads us up to this next point. Sometimes the, the chapters and verse breaks in our, in our Bibles are just kind of not helpful, because we, we think that there's a, there's a point in the, there's a, there's a shift in the text, and here there's not. There's, there's no shift here between chapter 3 and, and chapter 4 because it almost is actually immediately this takes place because it sets us up for, for our passage this morning because not only does, does, uh, um, does it help us to define the confidence that we have in our relationship with God as sons of God, but we also see now that this confident relationship with God is now leading Jesus to go to battle to go to war, this raging war that has been taking place. Because God has sent his son into the world to destroy the works of darkness, that although the war is certain, there's a victor, and it's clear to us, but evil will not go down without a fight. You know, the, the, the devil is a far greater adversary than sometimes we like to give him credit. He's far more subtle, he's far smarter than us, and we will see that in this passage and how 
the devil is trying to trip up and derail the Son of God. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is, is about the devil trying to stop the incarnate Son of God from fulfilling his, miss- his mission. It's to stop Jesus from being faithful and obedient to his Father. That's what this passage is about. It's to stop the work of God, to stop the, the mission of God, the plan of God, the crushing of the head of the serpent by the seed of the woman. All right, let's look to Luke 4, verse 1. Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I love this, right? Luke is totally down with the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, he is just giving it to us. And there's no doubt that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit... He returned from the Jordan, right, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So there's three things I want to start us off as we, we, we kind of introduce our passage in these temptations. I want to, I want to start off with three things by setting the, the context and the stage for us to understand um, this, this kind of different story, right? This different idea. There's not too many moments in Scripture where we actually see the devil come in and, and actually show his face and unveil himself and show himself at work. And this is one of them. This is, this is one of them. This is one of these very important moments. And the first thing that we need to understand is, is we, are, we are told again about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the second part of the Trinity, has already been flowing throughout the Gospel of Luke in so many ways, right? We, we saw how the, the Holy Spirit was indwelling in, in all the participants of, of the birth narratives. We see how uh, the Holy Spirit was involved in, in Jesus' baptism. We see how also how the, the Holy Spirit is now being intricately involved in the ministry of Jesus, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, meaning he was guiding Jesus. Every step of the way, the Holy Spirit was guiding Jesus. And we see that throughout the life of Christ. That every step is guided and led by God. Guided and led by the Holy Spirit. And so for this account... In this, this instant, we, we should have a clear understanding that it is the Holy Spirit of God that arranged this encounter. That he, that he arranged this encounter, leading Jesus into the wilderness to be there for 40 days. This is not a, a sneak attack by the devil. Right? This, isn't, this isn't the flat tire kind of thing. Right? You get accidentally get a flat tire, right? and every, the day kind of gets derailed. No, this was planned and purposed by the will of God to lead his son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This trial, these trials, and all the rest are a part of God's plan and all are a part of God's initiative. All are his initiative. And yet through it all, the Holy Spirit empowers and guides him throughout his ministry including these trials. 
The second thing I want you to understand in these first two verses is to understand that, that of who is tempting Jesus. The devil. Satan. The enemy. The adversary. Now, we don't know much about him from these passages. He does, Luke doesn't give us a, a description on what he looks like, and what he's doing, how tall he is, how long his tail is, which is not true. That's a caricature. We don't, we don't see all of those things. But what we understand and what we see, what we're supposed to understand, is I think we're supposed to make that connection to the other instances that we see the devil show up. And particularly the, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Yes, you see the, you see the link here? Adam, how we're, we're speaking of, of Adam again, and we're going to see so many parallels in our, in our passage this morning with the, with the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation of, of Jesus. is tempted by the devil. We see the devil show up in Genesis to tempt the first humans, and now he tries to tempt the Son of God. But this time, he's not dressed up like a serpent. He's not in costume, but he comes as he really is. The third thing I want you to see in this, in this passage, I want, I want you to understand the, the length of time and the location that is given. So the, the 40 days... And, and then also, where is he? He is, in the, he is in the wilderness. Now, we just mentioned the parallel between the temptation of Adam and Genesis. But, but, but see, Jesus was, there were some differences too. All right? So we're talking about parallel, I mean, they're not on the same track. There's some differences. And one of the big differences is Adam was in a lush garden where there was plenty to eat. There was food everywhere that was always at his disposal. Adam was in a lush garden. He had a full stomach, can consume freely of the trees, and yet still was tempted, but not Jesus. Jesus was in the wilderness. Jesus was in the desert. Also another difference is that Adam was with his wife. Jesus was alone. Jesus was alone, and we don't want to underestimate that, what being alone can do. 40 days is a long time to be alone. As a, as a human, that's a, that is a long time to be alone. One of the, one of the shows that, that we like to watch on uh, the History Channel is called Alone. Right? It's called Alone. And it's about these people that, that, that go into this remote place um, and, and very remote and, and very, it's inhabited. It's so hard to live and, 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 and survive there that it's completely inhabited. And, and these people, they go there and they try to survive by themselves. They try, to, they, they, can, they try to get food, they make shelter and all that stuff, and then they try to survive long term. And whoever lasts the longest wins, right? And they'll come and pick up the, the last person. And, and almost everybody that's, that's on the island, everybody who's, who's there, it, it doesn't take long for them to struggle in two different ways. The first one is trying to find food. They can't find food, they, so they, they begin to struggle there. But the, but the killer, the straw that breaks the camel back all, every single time has always been being alone. That what, what kills them the most is being alone, missing that, that companionship. And it's really funny because now we're in the third season, and, 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 and yet they're still, they, don't, they still speak as if this is going to be a big surprise. 
And so here's Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, alone and hungry. Alone and hungry. Right? And, and it's a type of hunger that, that you know, that we're not going to, that we're going to, it's not the type of hunger that we're going to feel in about 15, 20 minutes. You know how it's lunchtime, you start to get, it's not that kind of hunger. It's an immense hunger. And if you ever fasted for any length of time that you know, it's hard. And yet, here's Jesus. There's also another parallel that not just to Adam and uh, Adam's account, but also there's a parallel with the nation of Israel, the 40 days wandering in the, in the desert for 40 years. And those 40 years came from the 40 days that the spies spent in the land scoping out the land. God says, go conquer the land. It says, okay, we'll do that, but let's send some spies first, as if they, they don't believe God would help them. And they come back, and you know the story. They come back, and they doubt. They, they say, there's, there's, it's a land of giants. We're grasshoppers. And they doubt, and they say, we're just going to stay here. And so God punishes them that they would wander 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were gone. So it's, under, it's highly significant for us to see these similarities and these difficulties. Because once again, the parallel between Jesus is the better Adam. And Jesus is the, is the better Israel. He is the, the, the new Israel, the greater Israel. Because where Adam was tempted by the devil and he chose not to obey the word, and where Israel was, was, was tempted, this other son of God that we understand in the Old Testament, that sometimes Israel is referred to as another son of God, that when they were tested in the wilderness, they descended into complaining and grumbling against God and against Moses, and they quickly cast off the promises of God, forgetting about the promises already kept by God that he would care for them. And now here's Jesus, the Son of God, the drama of this whole entire scene that we cannot overestimate or overplay. Will he fail like Adam? Will he fail like Israel? Will Satan be able to mess up God's plan? One of the, the scenes that I, I kind of thought about this movie in this, in this part when, when thinking about these characters of, of salvation history and the biblical narrative and theology, the biblical theology and things like that. One of the movies that, that came to my mind, and it's one of my favorite movies, um, and some of y'all might be familiar, some of you not, but the, the movie The Cowboys. Anybody ever seen that movie? The Cowboys with, with John Wayne. It's one of his last movies he's ever, he was ever in. And in this, is he's this old cowboy, and the gold rush has hit the, hit the western United States, and so every cowboy in sight went, to, went out, out to California to find gold. There wasn't anybody that could help him move his cattle to, to where they needed to be. And so there was no one there to help. And so John, John Wayne, is just, he's the old, and just him and his wife, there's no one to help, and he's got these thousands head of cattle and need help. The only ones that were left in the land were these young boys, little young children. And, and so he, he begins to train these little children and what to, to be cowboys and then to take these, to take these, uh, uh, these cows uh, to where they needed to be. And, and they go on their, their cattle drive, but while they're on these, this cattle drive, they meet up with these, these, these bad guys. And these bad guys originally wanted the job, but anyways, this is a long story. But anyways, we get to the end where there's this confrontation where the bad guys begin to kidnap the children, these, the, the, the young boys. And, and then while they were doing this, this guy was so bad that he, he began to beat up on them. 
He began to beat up on these, on these young boys. And there's this, there's this scene in the, in the movie, this, this line where, where John Wayne stands up and he tells him, he tells this bad guy, he says, he says, now we know how you can handle these boys. Let's see how you handle a real man. And he, and he says it like I can't. You know, I'm a wimp. I, I can't say it like he can. You know, he says it like John Wayne can. And, and this is kind of the scene that I see. I see this weakened Jesus stand up and says, we, we can see how you, can, you handle these others, but let's see how you handle a real man. And this is, the, this is the story that we have. So let's look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. We're going we're to move a little bit quicker. Look at verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, If it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up. We'll, we'll get to verse 5 in just a second. So here is our, here is our, our first temptation that, that is set before us uh, by Satan to Jesus. And in verse 3, it makes it sound like Jesus is even doubting. Okay, should I really even be tempting you because I don't really know if you're the Son of God? No, he knows he is the, the Son of God. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows exactly who he is, who he's talking to. But this is Satan being subtle and smart and crafty. Because what he is doing is he's asking the same kind of question to bring the same kind of doubt in Jesus' heart and mind as he did with Adam and Eve, right? He asked Adam and Eve. He said, did, did God really ask, or did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the answer is simple, yes. Or I mean, no, the answer is simple, no. We have, we have the whole entire garden here that God has given us. He's given us so much, but there's just that one tree that we're not supposed to eat of. And so this, this question is to bring up doubt. The doubt in their, doubt in their minds, the doubt in, in Jesus' mind that unless you have absolute, complete freedom to eat wherever you want, if it's completely limitless, then, then you absolutely don't have freedom. That if it's not completely limitless, then you really don't have freedom. That's the doubt that is being put here if you are the Son of God. And so they believed the lie. Adam and Eve believed the lie. Well, yeah, you're right. And so here, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. This attack upon his, his sonship, this attack upon his experience of, of, of hunger. Now, it is not sinful for Jesus to turn bread or turn rocks into bread. There's nothing in inherently sinful about bread. If so, we would all be in trouble, wouldn't we? What, what's, the, what's the point here? In fact, in fact, I don't even think Jesus would be breaking his fast. I think his fast is over at this point. He's just still really hungry. So what is the point here? What is, what is really going on here? It's not the, the doing the miracle because Jesus has done this before. All right, not before, but he'll do it eventually where he'll multiply that boy's lunch to feed thousands of people. What was it? What, what, what is the, the, the real question here? You see, the, the, the temptation was for Jesus to take a, take a simple way out. It was a temptation to take a, take a, a simple way out 
to fulfill his weakness and those limitations that he is feeling in the flesh. Because remember, Jesus is 100% man. He knows what it is. He knows how it feels to be like us. He knows what hunger is. He knows what exhaustion is. But what will Jesus follow? Will he seek his own comfort? Will he seek to fulfill his own, his, his own comfort? Or will he trust God the Father to supply all of his needs? To supply all of his needs. Jesus then responds. He responds here. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. It's a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, where, where the, the Lord is telling Israel uh, um, to, to trust him. And it's in, that, it's in that whole instance where they're grumbling because they're hungry. So they're wandering in the desert. They're hungry. They want something to eat. They're complaining. They'd rather go back to slavery. And God is saying in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's saying, I am not only the one who caused you to hunger, but I am also the one who will feed you. And so when Jesus is pointing us to this quote that man shall not live on bread alone, Deuteronomy verse 3 also says that, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord, meaning there is a greater food. There is a greater food, a far more superior bread out there than our own simple weaknesses or to fulfill our own simple weaknesses. That God's provision is greater. It's a trust issue, once again. It's a faithfulness issue, once again. And Jesus is saying that I will not complain like Israel, or will I try to fulfill myself, but I am going to feast upon God's Word. A real bread that lasts, a real bread that, that satisfies. Isn't that just spiritual gold for us? Like, just spiritual gold. I mean, if I can even equate it to even something dumb, it's like going to Popeyes and getting their biscuits. I mean, just gold. It's like the, it's not supposed to be, but it's just like the gold of the meal. Right? And, and, and this is spiritual gold for us, that our, that our Savior, who was hungry, I mean, just beyond any kind of hunger that we can imagine, saw and understood the greater trust and a greater provision of God the Father. Let's look at the second one as it builds. Verse 5. He says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give you all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then would worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So we see kind of the, uh, the same kind of tactic taking place here. Jesus answers back with, with Scripture. But we see the devil ramp something up here. He kind, of, he kind of flexes his own authority here, doesn't he? He takes Jesus, scoops him up, shows him a, a, a vision or a picture or whatever it may be. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all the nations and, and all the peoples, and he offers them to him. 
He says, Jesus, all of this could be yours. All this authority. And it could be yours now. It could be, it could be yours now. All these people would, would abandon all of their idols and all the, the false gods and everything, and they will worship you, Jesus. They will, they will come after you if you would just worship me. Now, some would say Satan was offering something that he didn't have the authority to give, and that's just not true. He did. It was lesser, but he, he, could, he could offer... He could offer these things. He could offer this. Because he, was in, he has been in control over the, the systems and structures of this, this fallen world that he uses and manipulates to serve his own purposes. The more I, the more I thought about this, this particular temptation, this second temptation, it just didn't seem like a very good temptation for, for him to make to the Son of God. And the, the reason why I, I, I thought that is because, because what's really happening. And, and, and the purpose behind it is, once again, is to derail Jesus. To take, a, to take the other, another way out. To derail the plan of, of God. What was, what was the devil offering to Jesus? In, in many ways, wasn't the devil offering what God had already offered him? In, in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, in the birth narrative, you remember the Holy Spirit, or the, I mean, not the Holy Spirit, but the angel of God tells Mary in verse 32, he says, he will be great, speaking of Jesus, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will do what? He will give him a throne of his father, David. He will have the throne. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And the kingdom, in his kingdom, there will be no end. So here's the promise of God that he made to give to his son. And we know that that, has been, that is being fulfilled and has been, has been fulfilled. This is the same kind of offer, but with a lot less greater cost. You see, for Jesus to be exalted by God his Father, it was going to cost Jesus a whole lot more than bowing down to a fallen angel. It was going to cost him everything. It was going to cost him pain and anguish. And he's, he's pointing that out to him. He's, he's showing it. Not only are these people not worth it, Jesus, but I can give it to you now. This is the quick road. This is the easy street. Take this crown without the cross. Take this crown without the cross. And yet Jesus, faithful and obedient, as he is choosing the path of obedience and faithfulness with this unimaginable suffering that will be to come, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What is greater? What brings and causes greater delight is knowing that I am pleased, I have pleased my Father and that I am loved by my Father. And he commits himself to that path that leads straight to the cross. Third temptation ramps up. Look at verse 9. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down here from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, his, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike a foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's the difference? What do we see here that's different? His game steps up by now. The devil says, okay, okay. You believe God's word, so let me quote to you God's word. He takes him up to the temple, the temple mount, and says, if you jump over off of this, you can, you can prove yourself to everybody right now that you are the true son of God when they see all these angels that come by, because it's promised in Psalm 91. It's promises that they will come by and they will scoop you up. They will scoot you up. And that's true. I mean, you read Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, that's exactly what it says. It's a messianic psalm. Christ is the fulfillment of this, of this particular psalm. You know, the one thing for sure, and we need to understand, is that the devil does not want Jesus to suffer and die. Right? I mean, he, he doesn't want him to, to, to suffer and die. He, he's telling him, once again, you don't have to die needlessly for these ungrateful sinners. Like jumping off a building. Needlessly dying. You, you don't need to do it. Because, because what can happen is, because Scripture says, doesn't, doesn't it say that your feet won't even be hurt? That your, your feet won't even, won't even bleed because you will be rescued and you should be safe. I mean, if you, are, if you are the Son of God, then do that and be spared from all of this. Not only is he offering him no suffering, but he's offering him safety. But to Jesus, this is not the kind of stunt that would bring real believing, righteous faith, or fulfill the mission in which his Father has sent him. But to experience the cross, and to experience the rejection of the crowds that Satan wants him to please, or win over. So in verse 13 tells us the end of the story. Three temptations. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The outcome of this, Jesus was faithful. Jesus was steadfast, trusting in the, in the, the Word of God, trusting in his position as the, the Son of God. And we see the devil tuck tail and run. And yet one thing for sure is, the war is on. The lines have been drawn, and it's going to get ugly. The battle has, is to come. There's more battles to come. Judas's betrayal, right? I mean, motivated by, by, the, by the works of the evil one, the, uh, Peter's denial, the mockery of the guards, anger, the anger of the, the Jewish leaders, the, the, and how the, the mob who a week earlier were proclaiming Jesus to be king, then began to say, crucify him. 
the devil was going to work. And yet Jesus was focused on the cross. Focused like a, like a laser. I mean, could not, could not get his eyes off the cross. He knew his mission, and he was secure in it. But did you notice the subtle ways in which Jesus was tempted? The temptation to, to, to be comforted? To seek comfort in, in weakness? To, to try to control and gain power by manipulating and the second temptation, and the third one, is to, to seek out safety in any way that you can. He didn't come to Jesus with wickedness. Right? He, didn't, he didn't take Jesus to, to, to prostitutes. He didn't bring him booze. He didn't bring him what we would call this, uh, the, the, the wickedness things of the world. He came to him with what? With good things. Things that we would call uh, uh, morally uh, neutral or, or, or good things. He, he came with, with bread. He came with safety. He came with, with exaltation of the world. You see, the same way that he comes to us. I think maybe sometimes we, we spend so much tra- time trying to stay away from those, those big sins that we consider to be wicked and we know they're wicked, they're impure and things like that. We spend so much time trying to avoid these things that we don't realize that it is these good things, the morally neutral things that are in our life are the very things that are killing us. They're the very things that are inhibiting our trust and delight in our position as sons of God. Let's take an example money. It's a good thing to pick on. Let's take example money. Money's a good thing. By all means, if you can make it, make it. But when, but when money becomes, uh, uh, becomes your ultimate, it becomes your, your heart's desires. Jesus says the, the love of money is the root of all evils. You begin to, to rearrange your life to gain more and more, and then every part of it seems to serve that purpose of gaining more and more money. You shape your friendships, your family. Everything is used to that end to serve the purpose of money. That's making money something that is good, ultimate. That's what we see Satan doing. So he subtly works in, in our lives. And, and then, and then this, these good things, these morally neutral things, is not just money. It could be the desire for money. It could, be, it could be our children. It could be our spouses. It could be friends. It could be school. It could be safety. It could be food. It could be leisure. It could be sex. All of these things that were good or morally neutral to us can all be manipulated in our hearts and used as idols when they become ultimate. When they become ultimate. It's not the bad things that we would consider bad. And we have this category in Christianity that we put over here that, that we don't do, but we can do all these things in extreme excess, and it's okay. I mean, if you, if you spend 20 hours a week watching Netflix and only two minutes in the Word of God, then you are eating bread of this world. And, and, and what does that say? Man can't live on bread alone but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the world. And, and we can put this anything. Netflix is not inherently bad. Most of the things on Netflix can be inherently bad. But it's not. 
But when we make it ultimate, when we make it ultimate, then it's killing us. It would, then it's killing us. So then how could we be free from sin? How could we be free from sin? Often this passage is, is used to, to take the temptations of, of Jesus, and then we kind, of, we kind of reduce it into these strategies, into these, into these tactics on how we can resist temptations and things that we may face in the struggles of, of, of our life. It's okay. We, we kind of reduce it to strategies. Well, how did Jesus do it? Then, then I can make these plans and these strategies and these tactics, and when I'm tempted, I can, I can, I can trust the Lord. And one of the, excuse me, one of the big ways is that since Jesus quoted the Bible, then, then this must be the, the, the strategy that I must take. Now, when I was growing up in, in youth group, um, we used to be, we were taught that uh, uh, very topically all the time. Right? We were taught topically all the time. There was one night we were talking about sex, another night we, which, which would draw a lot of kids, by the way. I mean, you want to build a youth group, you, you talk about that. And, and, and we, we talked about that, and we talked about all these different things, and then we would take verses to, like, beat those issues up, right, is, is what they're doing. So if you struggle with, with lust, or if you struggled with, with anger, and if you struggled with money, or you struggled with whatever it might have been, you were given this, these categories, these lists of verses that you were told to memorize all of these verses, and then when temptation comes, you can, you can spit these words out as if like you're taking this pill, and, and then you will be okay. Memorize these verses, read this, we're taught, we were taught this, and kind of like, uh, like spells, like we're taught these spells, these incantations. Learn these spells when you face darkness, when you face temptations. And see, the problem was, is that's not the point of Scripture, and I don't think even that's what Jesus is doing. The problem is, with, with that strategy, with that tactic, is that's not the point of Scripture. The point of, of Scripture is, is not to teach us these incantations that we can use against the devil. It's to teach us about Christ himself. For us to delight in the Lord, to treasure, to know, to enjoy Him, and, and how God has then communicated, revealed Himself into us so that we can un- enjoy and understand life at its deepest levels. That's what the Scripture's for. So again, it's, it's not this, as this, I always remember also another thing growing up, I remember someone telling me that, that the Bible is like, a, like a, a recipe book, like a cookbook. Right? You want to eat this? Go here. You want to do this? Go here. And I remember as a kid going, man, that's a good idea. What a great illustration. The problem is, is that's not the Bible. That's not the Bible. That's not what, that, that's not what it's, it's there for. You see, Jesus did not face these temptations and trials in the wilderness just so that we can look at Jesus as our good example. He did not face uh, the, the adversity in his life so that we can look at him as an example when we face adversity in our life. But rather, Jesus was there in the wilderness facing these temptations in these trials, not to be our example, but to be our Savior. But to be our Savior. I mean, we've got to understand this. Understand this. Jesus is not our example. I mean, he's a great example. Don't get me wrong. But if that's all he is to you, then he's not your savior. He's the better Adam. 
the better Israel that stood in our place in the desert and was tempted in our place. When others stood and would not trust the word of God, when we stand and would not trust the, the word of God, and, and when we fail, there was one who stood in the, in the desert and, and withstood the temptations of the evil one. Jesus, he was faithful because he is to be our Savior. He was faithful. He was faithful in his life. He was faithful in his sacrificial death. And hear me on this. Now we as his people we are free from the power and the penalty of sin. The victory in the wilderness is our victory. The victory in the wilderness is our victory. Christ was victorious so that we can be victorious. If you are in Christ, then hear me. You're no longer slaves to sin. You're no longer slaves to sin even to those good things, right? We're no longer slaves to those good things that we make ultimate in our, in our life. We're not unable to resist temptation because Jesus has overcome sin and death. He is victorious, therefore we are victorious. We can fight. We can stand. And we can put sin to death by looking to Christ. To looking to Christ. And so underneath that, that's when we pursue the Word of God. That's when we go out. That's when we go in the Scripture because we know that's where we will find life. That's not where we will find Christ. We go to the one who fought the tempter on our behalf. And we go to him in our time of need. When temptation comes our way, we look to him. As Hebrews 2 tells us, our, our great high priest, we can put it up there, Hebrews 2 tells us that he, is our, that he is our faithful and merciful high priest who made a propitiation for all our sins, for all people, for because he himself has what? Suffered when tempted, and he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is our Savior. We, we look to him, Hebrews 4, since then, since he is our great high priest who passed through the, the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. It means he understands. He, he understands. He can sympathize. He knows the struggle. And he's right there in that moment of, of weakness. He's right there. He's right there. What is it? Look at that. For sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as, as we are, and yet without sin. Because he's our Savior. You know, if you look to him as just your example, you're going to feel like an utter failure all the time. You're going to be caught in a, in a struggle of, of uh, performance. You're going to feel like a slave and you're not going to be a son. But we're sons. And when we are tempted, we look to our Savior. We deal with the, we deal with the heart issues of sin. 
We deal with the heart, the heart issues of sin by looking to Christ. By looking to God, the only one who can change us. He's the only one that can, that can change us. So when we're, when we're tempted to make the good things in our lives, when we're tempted to make these, these good things in our lives ultimate, whatever it may be, control, safety, whatever we want to manipulate and control, we need to look to Christ, our Savior. Because it's only in those exact moments He will meet us there. He is our great high priest. And as we read in Hebrews 4, that we're, or I think it's 4, 4, that we can be confident that as we draw near to the throne of grace, he's merciful and gracious. So before we go to our, our, our time of corporate response, I want to just take a moment to ask you a few questions. I want to ask you a few questions. Are there things in your life that you have made ultimate? Are there things in your life that you have made ultimate? What are those things that are killing you? That are sapping all the life, the, the true life and joy? It could be those good things. It could be bad, the, the, the wicked things. Those morally neutral things. What is on the throne of your life? Is it a person? Is it a thing? And this is a big question. And you have to answer that question. You have, you have to answer that question. Everyone else has an answer to that question right now. And if you don't answer it, that answers it, doesn't it? If you don't answer that question, doesn't that answer the question that there is something on the throne of your life you just don't want to tell anyone? Or you just don't want to tell yourself? You don't want to be honest about? Are you looking to Jesus as your example? Or are you looking to him as your Savior? Brothers and sisters, I pray that we will look to our Savior who was victorious in the wilderness on our behalf so that we can be victorious over sin as well in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we, some of us may be weary from sin and temptation, we may feel as if we've been in the wilderness for a long time, we may even feel as if we're starving for real life. We've been eating false bread, bread of this world, sand from empty wells, for so long, and I pray that as your Holy Spirit this morning would lead us and to lead them to see Christ, the bread of life, to eat of him, to see him as, as Savior, so that when sin and temptation come our way, we may not just resist temptation and that we would delight in Christ. We would see a greater joy. We would see a greater satisfaction that is found in knowing Jesus. Help us to grasp these realities, the greater realities that we are loved sons of God. Help us to continue to walk the path that our Savior walked, who has gone before us, 
Lord, help us as we now respond, being encouraging and edifying to one another and to the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.